You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Microsoft is in talks to acquire TikTok as the U.S. hints it may be considering action against other Chinese software companies. Three young men have been charged in the Twitter hack. An apparent distributed denial-of-service attack turns out to have been a glitch. We welcome Verizon's Chris Novak to the show. Rick Howard talks incident response. And updates on the Garmin hack suggest shifts in the ransomware threat. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, August 3rd, 2020. Microsoft said yesterday that it was in continuing talks to acquire TikTok, the social platform currently owned by Chinese firm ByteDance. The company attributes its decision to talks between its chairman and U.S. President Trump. Quote, Following a conversation between Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and President Donald J. Trump, Microsoft is prepared to continue discussions to explore a purchase of TikTok in the United States. End quote. Reuters has reported that ByteDance has agreed to divest its holdings in TikTok to a U.S. owner. The announcement came after the president's statement Friday reported in the Washington Post that he intended, on security grounds, to ban TikTok from operating in the U.S., the security issue arises because of the large quantity of personal information the company collects on its users, including their connections with other users. TikTok is unlikely to be the last Chinese software firm to face restrictions on its ability to operate in the U.S. According to the Los Angeles Times, Secretary of State Pompeo has suggested that other firms will soon be receiving similar close scrutiny. U.S. federal prosecutors have charged three youths in connection with the Twitter hack. Graham Ivan Clark, age 17, of Tampa, Florida, Mason Shepard, 19, of Bognor Regis, England, and Nima Fazelli, 22, of Orlando, Florida, are the three under indictment. The U.S. attorney for the Northern District of California declined to name Mr. Clark because of his age, but his arrest has been so widely reported by the press in Florida and elsewhere that there seems little point in finessing the identification at this point. The three are alleged to have made contact with one another in the OG user forum and then to have fraudulently persuaded Twitter employees to yield credentials that enabled them to impersonate high-profile Twitter users in a Bitcoin scam. The specific charges are as follows. The young English gentleman, Mason Shepard, age 19, who goes by the hacker name Shaywan, is charged with federal counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, conspiracy to commit money laundering, and the intentional access of a protected computer. Mr. Shepard's alleged colleague, Nima Fazelli of Orlando, Florida, who goes by the handle Rolex, and at the advanced age of 22 is, relatively speaking, the graybeard among the accused, was charged with aiding and abetting the intentional access of a protected computer. 
The third defendant is the 17-year-old Graham Ivan Clark of Tampa. According to the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of California, quote, Pursuant to the Federal Juvenile Delinquency Act, the Justice Department has referred the individual to the state attorney for the 13th Judicial District in Tampa, Florida. The Tampa Bay Times says that Master Clark's bail was set Saturday at $725,000. Described as the mastermind of the Twitter social engineering and the Bitcoin scam it was allegedly designed to enable, Master Clark faces 30 Florida state counts related to the incident, 17 counts of communications fraud, 11 counts of fraudulent use of personal information, and one count each of organized fraud for more than $5,000 and accessing a computer or electronic device without authority. Florida prosecutors intend to charge him as an adult in what they're calling the BitCon case. ZDNet has a timeline of the investigation. It appears that the FBI tracked online activity in Discord and OG users until they came to points where the three accused used either their real identities or their home IP addresses, or both. Krebs on Security describes how the trio attempted some misdirection with chatter, but they'd probably have been better advised to keep a lower profile. The difficulty of attribution is a familiar problem. If you're hit with a cyber attack, it can be, and usually is, hard to tell who the attacker is. The feds moved quickly on the people it thinks responsible for the Twitter hack, but that's the exception, not the norm. But there's a prior problem. Before you attribute an attack to a threat actor, it's good to know that actually you've come under attack. That's not always clear. There are problems and outages that can look like an attack, but aren't. An example of that occurred over the weekend in Australia, where The Guardian reported that Telstra said its users were hit Sunday with a distributed denial-of-service attack. Service had been disrupted in much of the eastern part of the country. The problems extended to some major cities— Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane among them. Only it wasn't so. It turned out that while there were outages, there was no attack. Telstra backtracked on its diagnosis soon after it made it. A few hours after warning of the attack, the company announced that it had determined that it was a domain name server issue. The Islander quotes company representatives of saying, The massive messaging storm that presented as a denial-of-service cyber attack has been investigated by our security teams and we now believe that it was not malicious but a domain name server issue. We're really sorry for getting the way of your weekend plans. End quote. The problems were resolved by 2.30 in the afternoon, local time. Bleeping Computer confirmed Saturday that Garmin indeed obtained a key for a wasted locker. The outlet says that it knows of no way Garmin could have obtained the key other than by paying the ransom the hacker demanded, the hacker widely believed to be the Russian-based Evil Corp gang. Wired sees the Garmin attack as a disturbing harbinger of more to come. The gangs appear to be hitting more sophisticated, richer, and better protected targets, and they're asking for an order of magnitude more ransom. There are some implications for election security as well. Both the U.S. Departments of Justice and Homeland Security have warned of the disruptive effects on election systems that a ransomware attack can have. And joining us once again with a preview of his CSO Perspectives podcast is our own Rick Howard, the CyberWire's chief analyst and chief security officer. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Dave. 
so this week you are covering uh, a topic that I find endlessly fascinating, and, and I'm not being sarcastic there. I'm being sincere, <laughs> and that is, yeah, and that is incident response. Uh, take us through uh, how you coming at this this week. Well, uh, here's my big fat hot take. All right, you ready for this? Yeah. Incident response is not rocket science. Okay, hmm. so okay. Uh, uh, now, if you look at uh, the documents that NIST have put together, they put a couple of them together. This is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Right. And they say, you know, it's only you only have to do five things for incident response. You plan, uh, you detect bad guys, uh, you respond to it, and then you communicate what you did, and then do a postmortem so you do it better the next time. That sounds hmm. pretty simple. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, but the complicated part, though, is managing all the pieces within your organization. That's where it starts to get a little tricky. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, because it turns out that if there's something material to the business going on, some penetration. Right. Uh, somebody in the organization has to coordinate all these activities across multiple functions of the company, because as soon as the technical teams discover that it's real as opposed to maybe it's real. Mm -hmm. Right now we're talking lawyers, we're talking PR people, we're talking finance people. Everybody has a say about how to do this. Right. And it turns out that most CISOs, they don't own most of those functions in terms of responsibility, right? In fact, mm. you know, that, and that's a big deal, right? That's yeah, a huge yeah. deal. Uh, if, in fact, most cases, they're pretty much low man on the totem pole for these kinds of things. So it is difficult to coordinate that when you're not the one in charge of everything. But I was talking to an old friend of mine. His name is uh, Jerry Archer. He is the CSO of Sally May Bank. He's been there for 11 years. Hmm. Um, and I talked to him uh, or I convinced him to sit down at the hash table with me to discuss, you know, how he does incident response. And I discovered that his organization is unique and will probably be the envy of every CISO in the business, right? He, hmm. Because he owns the entire security function inside Sally May. And he built it that way from scratch when he first started. So let me run a clip from him. Here's what he said. The organization that's uh, under me is, is basically a converged security organization that has both physical and logical security merged into one organization. So we manage everything security related for the firm. One of the things that's probably most interesting about that model is, uh, as we're going to talk about an incident response, because we have a converged security organization, we have a very robust capability that we use a lot of our physical security guys uh, as part and parcel to our incident management scheme. So the converged organization works very well in that incident management uh, or incident response uh, kind of a scenario. We, we early on, Rick, created a strategy that we called aggregate, automate, and accelerate. And so the theory of the case that we presented to executive management and got buy-in to early on was the idea that we needed to leverage scarce security resources. So a lot of resources associated with security are very scarce, hard to, hard to find, hard to keep. And so uh, we said, look, we need to aggregate everything security so we can take advantage of that. So that was the aggregation part. And, and again, we got synergies from both sides working together uh, in a holistic manner to create a, a, a strong security uh, presence in the firm. And then the, the next thing that we said to the, to the uh, executives and, the, frankly, the board of directors was, 
we wanted to automate. So again, we could use the tools that were, you know, all the tools that we could find to heavily automate our environment, take advantage of the automation to get rid of routine kinds of uh, work and, and focus on more uh, uh, relevant uh, things and strategic things versus just doing the arms and legs works every day. And then the idea was accelerate by doing all those first two things. It gave us the ability to accelerate and keep up with the business as the business changed and new products evolved and so forth. So that was why we, how we sold it to the organization. And I think it's worked very well since then. Now, his strategy of aggregating, automating, and accelerating was way ahead of its time. You know, it was, and it's so compelling uh, that when he told his board that's what he wanted to do, they gave him permission to do this. So it's really amazing stuff. Hmm. You know, I, I have to ask you, Rick, I mean, my perception on incident response is that, I, I don't know, almost... Uh, I guess it's almost funny to say it, but it seems to me like your success in responding to an incident uh, is directly proportional to your amount of pre-planning for the incident. Is is that accurate to say? It it absolutely is. And you can look at some of the public uh, incident responses, you know, things we've seen in the news. And we all can sense uh, the companies that are doing it wrong because they mm-hmm. appear to be fumbling. Like they, this is the first time they've ever considered it that they might have to explain this to the public. And then there's other companies that do it completely right. You know, they're rolling it out and it seems, oh yeah, that sounds reasonable and, and, and the news kind of goes away. So the reason those companies are good at it is that they've actually practiced. And that's one of the things we talk about in the show, that you need to have very simple exercises where you run your executives through potential scenarios. Not so they can do it verbatim, but so they're not being exposed to it the first time when the big crisis happens. Yeah. All right. Well, at CSO Perspectives, it is part of CyberWire Pro. Uh, Do check it out. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. 
Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined by Chris Novak. He is the director of the Verizon Threat Research Advisory Center. Uh, Chris, it is great to have you on board. We're excited to have you uh, join us as a partner here along with Verizon. Welcome to the CyberWire. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. So uh, before we get going, I uh, just uh, figured we'd uh, use this first opportunity together to get to know you a little bit, let our audience learn a little bit about you. Can you take us uh, through your career journey? How did you get your start and, and what led you to where you are today? I'm sure. Yeah. So uh, kind of an interesting journey indeed. Uh, actually started with an electrical engineering background, playing with uh, hardware, uh, circuit design, things like that, and uh, started out thereafter moving into industrial control systems and operational technology, and then eventually going into the IT and IT security side. And the whole cybersecurity aspect really just uh, fascinated me. And so from there, um, kind of went into the journey of uh, helping organizations build security apparatus for their their IT infrastructure. And as things went on, organizations started recognizing, hey, something looks funny with my website. Looks like someone might have defaced it. Let's do an <laughs> investigation. And then that led to the growth of incident response. And I'm actually uh, one of the uh, co-founding members of the uh, incident response team here at Verizon and, you know, help organizations all around the world uh, deal with, you know, incidents of various, you know, shapes and sizes from financial fraud to Theft of intellectual property to, you know, cyber espionage and terrorism. And uh, really has kind of just uh, kind of taken off into an interesting journey down the, the incident response and digital forensics and threat intelligence side of things ever since. And it's just been an exciting journey. Can you give us some insights? Uh, what, 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 um, what do having the resources of an organization like Verizon behind you, what does that bring to bear in terms of the capabilities that you and your team are able to bring to the table? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting aspect. So uh, actually, before I came to Verizon, I, I worked at an organization called CyberTrust. Verizon acquired them in 2007. And initially, the reaction a bunch of us had was, we're being acquired by a telephone company. Hmm. And then we started looking at it going, whoa, we're being acquired by a telephone company. This company <laughs> has access to all sorts of interesting resources. And one of them being, you know, a giant portion of the internet backbone. Think about that from a, an incident response standpoint. If you can actually see what's happening on the internet, the, the, the way I describe it to people who, who don't quite get it is, you know, if you've ever seen the movie, The Matrix, that point where you can suddenly start to see how it all fits together. And I tell people when you have access to the internet backbone and you're doing incident response, Response, you can start to see how packets flow in ways to places from places that if you didn't actually have optics into the backbone itself, you'd you'd really be missing a big piece of the picture. So that's that's honestly been a a, a fantastic and an exciting part of kind of the interesting capabilities and resources um, that that we can really bring to bear when we do an, an incident response or when we're researching something from a threat intelligence perspective. And so what is your day-to-day -day like these days? What sort of things uh, keep you busy? 
everything. Um, ransomware has been a big thing on the rise. I think uh, everyone has seen quite a bit of that. In fact, um, you know, we we produce our annual data breach investigations report, and uh, we saw so many ransomware cases just in the last year. It actually had almost a, a skewing effect in the data. We had to actually produce some of the charts that show this is what it looks like if you include ransomware in the data, and this is what it looks like if you exclude it, depending on, you know, what your threat model looks like. But um, then we also see a fair amount of, you know, everything from your, your credit card uh, breaches to, you know, your, like I said, intellectual property theft. And then also, you know, as it relates to things like, you know, COVID, uh, there's obviously a lot of new and interesting angles in which we're seeing organizations be targeted from a, you know, purely from a social engineering as well as, you know, phishing perspective. All right. Well, Chris Novak, uh, welcome to the CyberWire. We're looking forward to uh, continuing discussions with you. Glad to have you on board. Thanks. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.